My name is Bryant, lead pastor here. If you are investigating faith, not sure if you have any, or you are a longtime follower looking to grow in your faith, we're glad that you are here as we start a brand new series today. And before I dive into that, just to draw your attention to three weeks, it's hard to believe, is Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, if you didn't know that, and we have six services happening um, that day, seven if you count our Wesley Chapel campus. And so morning times are going to be the same, full childcare, and then three evening services with childcare up to four years old, and we'll have some special activities in the service for your kid. Um, but that's going to be an incredible day. So here's what I want to encourage you to do as a house, if you're a part of our CC family and Honestly, even if you're not, on your chair or you're sitting on it, it's next to you, um, but there's an invite card, and then there's also a little card that has five ways to invite on it. And each week, we're going to give you something tangible starting next week to take away with you, to just be able to use with your neighbors, your friends, just to invite them um, on that Sunday. But I just want to encourage you to take advantage of it and specifically do two things, to pray for somebody around you that you know, and then to ask for 30 seconds of courage to just invite them to come with you on that week. And here's what we know, that during this time of year, people are more open to accept an invitation, regardless of their background, regardless of how bad their church experience has been to come. And so in many cases, all it requires from you is literally 30 seconds of courage. And um, I feel the same angst as you do. I mean, uh, being a pastor, it's still difficult, like building relationships. And then there's that, hey, you know, you want to come with us. But I'm telling you, every single year, um, we see and experience so many stories of, this is not hyperbole, lives being changed forever. And what is so cool is I have some of my own stories, me and my wife, of um, friends we've gotten to know, people in our neighborhood that um, we eventually invited and we watched them at a Christmas Eve service uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, there's nothing like that. So I just want to encourage you to pray, to invite. And let me just tell you this last thing to why this is such a big deal. And just so you know, there is no friend, coworker, neighbor who is a project, all right? Whether they ever believe what you believe or come to your church, that, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is the fact that they are made in the image of God. And in many cases, a relationship with Jesus for somebody begins with a relationship with one of his followers. I'm about ready to duck here in a second. Um, so you've been placed where you are for a reason. We believe that as Christians, that God has placed you in that neighborhood, maybe in that workplace that you don't even want to be there right now for a reason. And this may be the weekend where God changes everything for somebody that you know. So I just want to encourage you to maybe rearrange your schedule a little bit sacrifice a little bit. We have a lot of staff and volunteers who sacrifice a ton um, on our Christmas Eve services because we know what's at stake and maybe attend one or two and invite somebody to come with you and alter your plans a little bit. And I'll be at the party a little bit later because I'm telling you, this is an incredible, incredible opportunity. So with that said, and I'm going to do this every week as we lead up, would you stand with me one more time? Some of you need the cardio after Thanksgiving anyway. Stand with me one more time. And I want you specifically to pray for that individual or those individuals that maybe God's already place on your mind, you're already investing in, and to just have the 30 seconds of courage to invite them this month. So all over the house, right where you're at in your own heart and mind, you pray, and then I'm going to close out in just a second. Jesus, we just thank you for the incredible opportunity and privilege to just gather today. And 
Lord, we come, a lot of us, expectant that we are not here by accident, but that you want to do something profound even through these few minutes. And so I just pray that with all of the stories represented at both of our campuses, all of the things that maybe we're dragging in here, all of the worries, the, the things that are at the forefront of our mind are all over the place. But even in that, you have a way of speaking specifically and Lord, just moving in our situation in a way that we could never imagine. And so we're asking that today in the hearts and lives of people all over our services in our campuses. And Lord, we pray that in just a few weeks you would do that among the hundreds and hundreds of people who will be here um, on our Christmas Eve services. And many for the first time experiencing and encountering the life and the hope that's offered in Jesus. And Lord, we know that you want to work. We know that, Lord, everybody spends forever somewhere, that there is a ton that's at stake, and you desire to use us in the places that you strategically called us to be, to reach people, to reach neighbors, to reach friends that maybe nobody else can reach. And so, God, we want to care. Lord, we want to be bold. We pray that you would give us courage and that in this season where so much can crowd around to crowd out what is most important, I pray that we care about the people who are around us and we would see many who would have their eternities altered forever because of us. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're diving into a brand new series called A Simple Christmas. And here's what I know about this time of year. Regardless of how much you fight against this, Christmas can be complicated. Like, there's just a ton surrounding. And it's great. I'm all in. We decorate on, like, November 1st. There's garland in our bathroom. Like, we are, we're all in. So I love the season, but it's complicated. If you have kids, it's complicated. It's awesome, but there's a lot that you got to work through. Um, it's complicated in regard to family. It's complicated in regard to schedules. Um, this is the season of the year where men are lied to all over the place. Oh, you don't you don't need to get me anything. You don't need you don't need to worry about it. And and woe to the guy that believes that lie, right? So even this year, like we and I've I've I know better, so I wasn't planning on this anyway, but we had made a verbal agreement because we're going on a trip in a little bit. We weren't, Nicole and I weren't going to get each other presents. And so, okay, we didn't, I mean, it wasn't a signed contract, but it was a handshake deal. Only to find out this week she's on Amazon buying me something for Christmas. So if I would have played into that lie, who looks like a jerk on Christmas morning? I do. So don't. So it's complicated for that reason. It's complicated getting family together. I mean, if there's a divorce, uh, maybe with your parents or in-laws, and it's you know it's her you know uh, wife or her um, mother and boyfriend, or it's his father and new wife, and it's there's a crazy uncle in there somewhere, and maybe you've got parents who aren't divorced but they don't get along, and if there's divorces on both sides, then you got four people that you're trying to navigate and deal with. I mean, it's just crazy. And if all those people are getting together, somebody's getting mad at some point. So that's complicated. I mean, it's just, it's just complicated. And then I don't know if any of you did this if you're married on the front end of getting together, but you had that talk about how you're going to divide up the holidays. So that's, that's a tough one. And so my wife and I are both type A, so we just decided we'd make a list. There's going to be two columns. You get this holiday. She gets that holiday. And so Nicole decided she was going to make the list, and so she came back with it. And what she got was Thanksgiving, Christmas, Memorial Day, Easter, Independence Day. And then uh, I got Halloween, Groundhog Day, Earth Day, National Arbor Day, and Flag Day. So that's what I got. It didn't work out that way because we had kids, we weren't going to travel, but that was the original intent. That was her thinking. Um, so that's it. And then, I don't know if this is true with you, but there is 
so many unrealistic expectations this year. So I remember um, our third Christmas, we had uh, our firstborn, Brooke, was just born like two months before that, end of October. And this is not going to make sense to a lot of you don't have kids, but she had colic and reflux, which was uh, translation hell, um, the first three months of her life. It was just horrible. And I'll never forget, I literally got angry around the holidays where people talking about the most wonderful time of year. And I'm like, no, I want to jam something in my eye right now. Like, I'm so miserable. Christmas night, couldn't even sleep. We were up all night long. So, so there's that. There's unrealistic expectations. There's all kind of stuff. I mean, it is and again, I love it. I'm all in, big fan, but it is complicated. So my point in all of that is I can't help you with any of that, okay? (laughs) And we are going to come back to a series in January about um, priorities called Seven Days to Live. So that that may help, but it's going to be too late for this season. So that's not even my point. My, My point is this. This season is incredibly complicated, but the message of Christmas should not be complicated. And here's what's really interesting is we kind of live in a culture where we're inoculated to the Jesus thing, meaning we've all kind of heard it, you, you know the story, and yet a lot of us don't. Uh, and a lot of us operate at a level that um, is not reality in regard to what this season means and what the scripture unpacks regarding this movement of following Jesus. And a lot of you have been sold something that, that this was never meant to be. And it's not your fault. It's the fault of people like me who stand on stages like this. But what I want to do for three weeks is narrow this down. And really, as I was thinking about this, there's three words that came to the forefront that I want to deal with um, in the next three weeks. But here's where I want to start the discussion, and I'll try to tie all this around. But when I was growing up, Um, I got the idea, and and I'm not really sure where this came from. It definitely didn't come from my dad. But I got this idea that everything in in regard to relationship with God surrounded what I would call vertical religion. And vertical religion is basically like you do certain things to just be good with God, right? Um, Which seems appropriate. And so whatever that combination is of, you know, attend church and Um, you know, read some stuff and have a quiet time and avoid certain things. I mean, I think that's appropriate. There's a morality component. but, But this vertical religion, not in regard to salvation, because we believe that salvation is through faith and trust. That when you believe that Jesus Christ really did come, die on the cross for all of your sins personally and for the world, walked out of a grave alive, when you transfer your trust to go, I can't earn my way to God and I'm trusting what God has done for me, you become a child of God. You have forgiveness. You have a relationship that is unaltered in the sense of you're never going to not be his child. But this is the experience of relationship with God. And I had the idea that it was vertical Religion. And here's what I mean by that. Vertical religion always leads to questions like this. Is that a sin? Is, is that a sin? How far can you go and still be okay with God? And you have all of these questions that eventually lead to a relationship with God built on loopholes and workarounds and escape clauses. Like, here's what I know about you. If I give you a rule, a hard and fast rule, you will find a way around it and feel okay about yourself. And I do the same thing. But this is kind of where vertical religion ultimately leads us to go. And you end up with kind of this thing built on how close can I get to sin without ticking God off? Like, how can I get what I want but still be cool with God? And it sounds kind of like a game. And it kind of is a game. 
Like Protestants have their version, Catholics have their versions, Muslims actually even have their versions, but we all reduce religion and relationship with God down to vertical religion. And I define it this way, a relationship with God determined by obedience to the laws of God. Now, when I say that, and this is where some things start to get whitewashed, a lot of you are like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, that's good. Like, that is a relationship with God is determined by obedience to the laws of God. So let me help unpack it this way. How many people obey you other than your dog? Wait, how many? Like, have you ever heard anybody like, you know what, the reason with my fiance, the reason our relationship is so good is he obeys me all the time. Now, you might think it, but you're never going to say it out loud, right? Hey, the re- reason we have such a great marriage is she just obeys me all the time. And that's, if you want the keys to success, we're happily married because of that. I mean, nobody reduces relationship down simply to obedience. Even with your kids, like as your kids grow to be adults, here's one thing that I know is if you have a great relationship with them as 20-somethings, it's not because they obeyed you all the time. Or it's not because as a 23-year-old, they're obeying you all the time. That was part of their, you know, the child-rearing process. But obedience does not characterize a great relationship ever. I mean, even in like boss-employee, if there is a relationship component to that, it's not based on obedience. I mean, we just don't reduce relationships down to obedience. We just don't in any realm of life. And yet, for a lot of us, we have reduced the whole God thing and relationship with God simply to a relationship that stems from obedience. And yet, intuitively and even practically, we know that that that's not the case. What makes a great relationship is not obedience. Not with your kids as they grow older, not in your relationship with your spouse, not with your coworkers. I mean, it's just not how we define things. And so... The question is this, like, how did we get to this point to where a lot of Christianity and a lot of what we do is we show up in environments like this is is operate on this level? And I'll tell you what I think, but it's more than what I think. I think it's a pretty solid, educated guess, is that we get this from the Old Testament and God's covenant or contract relationship with the nation of Israel. And that whole idea has followed us all the way up until 2017, where we're still trying to clarify and undo what has followed the church ever since. And so here's what I mean by that, is that in the Old Testament, and go with me for a second, I'm getting a little theological, but I've got a place where I'm headed. Old Covenant or Old Testament was literally a contract that God had with the nation of Israel. God was basically setting the stage to go, I want the world to know what it means to have a relationship with God in regard to how I act and how I interact with the nation of Israel. But it's going to be a contract relationship. It is going to be built around a specific point in time to set the stage for what would happen in the future. It basically was a cause and effect relationship where when the nation of Israel did what God had told them to do, God would bless them. And when they went off the rails and didn't do what God had told them to do, there was consequences. In many cases, they were made captive by another country. They were in 70 years of captivity to the Babylonians. But it was all cause and effect. It was, if we do, then God will. 
And God set that up, not just even in terms of relationship with God, but there was a social component to it in terms of a brand new nation. And there's so many things in the Old Testament we don't understand and they're culturally specific. But all of this was a covenant contract between God and the nation of Israel to set the stage ultimately for what God would want to do. Now, here's the question I would ask you. How many commands do you know of from the New Testament? A lot of you probably couldn't name one. You, the only thing you know is 10 commandments from the Old Testament, and my guess is, this is not a shot, I'm just saying, you probably know three. And the first one makes it really, really clear that God is making a commandment, and it's toward and directed toward a nation. It is very nation-specific. It was not toward an individual. It was toward a group of people in a moment in time in history to set the stage for what God would want to do in the future. And it was all cause and effect. Now, here's why that's relevant, is because a lot of us, because of how we grew up and because of what we were taught and what somebody handed off to us, if we're not careful, we literally relate with God as if we are the nation of Israel. And it all becomes cause and effect. If I do, then God will. If I do this, God's going to bless me. If I do this, then God's going to show favor. If I follow God in this way, then God's going to kind of work things out for me. It's kind of quid pro quo. I do, and then God will. It ultimately becomes this karma system that is um, really packaged as a relationship with Jesus. But we begin to operate with God on the basis of cause and effect, like we are the nation of Israel. And yet, what you find throughout the Old Testament is that the Old Covenant was really setting the stage for a new covenant or this new contract between God and not a nation. Not this specific people group in history, but between God and every single individual on the planet, regardless of race and background and socioeconomic status or who their dad was. It would be this covenant that would be available to every single individual on the planet. And what you find in the Old Testament is that the old covenant or old contract between God and Israel was literally Uh, if I could describe it this way, a cocoon or a catalyst to birth what ultimately God wanted to do in history. But the problem is a lot of us are still operating under this old contract and old covenant that has infiltrated the Jesus movement. So here's my whole point, is that when Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, in a way that I think a lot of us have lost the weight and the power of what actually happened. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it signaled the fact that God was launching something brand new, something completely other, something that had not been seen up until that point in human history. And then Jesus began to grow up, and in all of his teaching and all of his interaction and all of his ministry, he began to unpack that I am going to start a new movement that's going to be based on a single ethic, and a single command, and this single virtue that is going to narrow down everything, and it's going to change the game for everybody on the planet, and it will not be between me and a nation or a group of people. It's going to be me and an individual and any individual who comes to the place to recognize me as God. Everything is going to change. Everything is going to be brand new. The, The most maybe offensive way that Jesus described this to his Jewish people was the night that he was going to be betrayed. He's in an upper room. He's with his guys. All of them are Jewish. 
And we, again, we lose the shock value of this. This is why I think nobody would make this up because this was so shocking. This was so offensive. And Jesus is sitting there with his Jewish guys who had followed him around for three years. And he said, guys, just so you know, everybody's there to celebrate or remember Passover. What God had done through the nation of Israel hundreds of years before to rescue them out of captivity. And Jesus is sitting there with his guys to go, just so you guys know, tonight is the dawn of something brand new. Because the next time you gather, you're not going to be gathering around Passover to remember what God did hundreds of years ago. The next time that you gather, I'm going to completely undo this thing and turn it on its head for every individual. And instead, you're going to gather together to remember what I'm going to do in a couple hours that is going to change the course of human history and how we relate to God. I am going to introduce a brand new covenant that is going to be certified in my blood. And it's going to change everything for everybody. And basically what Jesus was launching was this new covenant around a single ethic and a single command that would move us from vertical religion to horizontal religion. Here's what I mean by this, is that all of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and all of the commands Jesus is about to say is going to be narrowed down to a single command. And I am going to shift the focus where horizontal religion is now going to be characterized as a relationship with God determined by your relationship with others. Not in regard to salvation. Salvation is by faith, trusting in what Christ has done that leads you to a place where you become a son and daughter of God. I'm talking about the experience of relationship, intimacy with your Savior. And he's going, I am about to change the game because every religion in the world always trends vertical. It's all about, God, you okay with me? God, are we cool? God, did I do enough? God, is everything right between you and me? And now the way that you're going to determine whether everything is right between you and God is to look Look at people who are to your right and to your left. This is going to determine the level of relationship that you have with your Savior. Everything is going to change. And it's going to hinge on a single command. And it's interesting because it took the church 40 to 50 years to wrap their minds around that, where they were still going back and forth to go, are you sure? And I mean, how can we let go of this stuff? And this seems too simple. And there was all of this question surrounding it. So John comes along. And John's a guy who was with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He watched Jesus perform miracles. He was there for a lot of the conversations. He was there in the upper room the night that they had that final Passover. John was there for all of it. John saw it, John heard it, John knew Jesus. And he sits down at the end of his life because the church was grappling with this whole idea. And he begins to articulate everything that he had experienced with Jesus to go, okay, I want to encapsulate what this new movement, this new covenant, and this new ethic is all about. It's about 40 years after the resurrection. And John sits down, he's exiled to an island. I don't really know why. I think it's because the emperors at that time were like, we keep killing Christians and it's not working and Christianity keeps spreading. Just exile them to an island. I don't, we don't know what to do with them anymore. And so John is an old man and he's on an island and he begins to look back through the inspiration of the spirit of God in him and write everything that he experienced with Jesus. And he articulates this shift that was represented with Jesus coming to planet earth from vertical religion to horizontal religion. And here, here's what he says. And I'm telling you, this is so huge. 
For me personally, there was a point in my life where this passage, along with several others, blew up all of my thinking. And the way that I had been operating with God began to change forever. And so here's what John writes, and, and let me actually, one more parenthesis before I get into this. If you walked away from the church, if you've been hurt by other Christians, I guarantee you the issue that you have now is probably not an intellectual issue. Maybe it is, but in a lot of cases, it's not. The issue that you have is because the Christians that you encountered or the church that you encountered did not embrace this. And so you watch somebody hurt or marginalize your mom or your parent or your family, and then they went their way singing songs and lifting their hands in the air, thinking everything was cool with God while they mistreated, marginalized, or ignored the people around them. And so John is about to say, that is not what it means to follow Jesus. That is not what Jesus came to unfurl for humanity. And I am about to articulate that the game has changed, a shift has happened, and it is simple, but it is more demanding than you could ever imagine because you won't find any loopholes, workarounds, or escape clauses in what it actually means to follow Jesus. Here's what it says, 1 John 2, 1, and if you go to our app, Media and Resources, I just want to let these verses speak, and then I'll try to tie a bow on this at the end. 1 John 2, 1, here's what it says. You guys still with me in the house? Okay. My dear children, which John's old, so that's just what you say. when Everybody's your kid. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Literally, like you have a go-between. You have somebody who is making your case on your behalf. You have an advocate with the Father. I love this. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we just like move past those because it just sounds like super spiritual, over-religious language. But just get this. John is sitting down to write this, and he's going, okay, just so you know, this isn't ethereal. This isn't out there somewhere. This is, I know Jesus. I spent time with Jesus, and I believe that he is a legit advocate for every single human being on the planet, that he has done something on our behalf that now clears the way for us to have a right standing with God. And then he says this, verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, meaning he satisfied the debt of what we've owed for our dysfunction. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and then again, this is so powerful, and not only for ours. And this is cultural context. John's going, okay, just so you know, this is not a Jewish thing anymore. This is not a people group. This is not a nation in history. It's not nation specific because the church is still struggling with, is it like Jewish plus Christianity? Is it become a Jew first? Does it get circumcised? And then, you know, encounter the Jesus thing. Like, what is it? And, and, and John's going, no, no, no. This is for everybody. This is not just for us. It's not just for Jewish people, but also for the sins of the whole world. Like the, the playing field has been leveled. Everybody gets in the same way and everybody has the same offer. But for the sins of the whole world, and then verse 3, we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we keep his commands. 
And he's going to unpack this in a second, so just stay with me. But he's going, okay, forgiveness is settled. If you've placed your faith and your trust in what Christ has done for you, nothing is going to undo that, regardless of what you do, because it's based off of his promises and not your behavior. But here's how you know if you have a legit relationship, meaning you're a son, you're a daughter of God if you place your trust in him. But I mean, intimacy in relationship. Like you can be somebody's son or daughter and not have a good relationship with them. John's about to go, here's how you know. And part of it is you follow what Jesus lays out because it's all about Jesus. This new movement, it is simple, but it is demanding. And so he says this, verse four, whoever says I know him, like I have a relationship with him, like we're, we're tight but does not do what he commands. And I love this. John is like, he's old. He's on an island. He's like, I'm not ever going to see these people. I don't care. (laughs) If you don't, I I envy it. If you don't do what he commands, you're a liar. I'm on an island. I'm never going to see you. And the truth is not in that person. And he's about, to, he's about to unpack this. Like, okay, if you say you're good with God, but don't do what Jesus said, John's words, you're a liar. If you, don't, if you don't follow, if you don't embrace what I am about to lay out, what this whole thing is about, you lie to yourself. But if anyone obeys, well, I thought relationship wasn't about obedience. Well, he's going to define what he means by this in a second. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God truly is made complete in them. Meaning, if you embrace what I'm about to lay out, if you obey this thing, which is not what most of us think, it's in a relational context. If you obey what Jesus lays out, it means that you love God. There's no mystery anymore. Well, how can you say that, John? Because Jesus came and predicted his own death and his own resurrection, and then he pulled it off. So anybody who can do that, you just follow whatever they say. So Jesus said, hey, you want to know what it's like to have a relationship with God? Watch me. If you want to know what the Father's like, hang around me. If you want to know what it's like to have a connection with God, all eyes on me. It's all about Jesus. And so he says, this is how we know we are in him. And this is so powerful. Whoever claims to live in him, to have a relationship with Jesus, must live as Jesus did. You're like, I'm out. He's going to, suddenly relationship with God gets a lot simpler because we have an example. I love the moment where Jesus is, is coming up out of the water, bapti- being baptized by John, and this weird thing happens where the sky opens in some kind of way, and a voice comes that basically, this is my paraphrase, if you want to know what God is like from now on, watch my boy. It is all about Jesus. If you want to know what it means to follow God, to love God, to have a relationship with God, it is going to be characterized by what you see as you look at the life of Jesus. And so then verse 7, he backs up. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. What I'm about to lay out is it's been with us for a while, but I'm going to say it in a different way. I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. Not the beginning of time, but since the beginning of Jesus, because of what Jesus launched at Christmas. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. And this old command is the message that you have heard. You've had it, but I'm going to say it in a different way. And then he gets poetic, and then he comes back to the practical in just a second, but I love what he says, verse 8. Yet I'm writing you a new command, 
and its truth is seen in him. Again, to just reiterate, if you ever wonder what this new command looks like, what the application of it looks like, how far you should go, you just watch Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And it is in you. Meaning if you really begin a relationship with Jesus and have a desire to follow Jesus and have an intimate relationship with Jesus, then it's going to be seen in you, what I'm about to talk about, because there's clarity now. You know when you're doing it and you know when you're not doing it. All of the ambiguity of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and all of those things where I'm not really sure and all the questions of what's a sin and what not's a sin, all of it's going to be narrowed down and all of the guesswork is going to be taken out of it. You're going to know where you stand with God. And then he says this, and this is the poetic part, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And this is poetic, but I love it. Basically what John's, and John I don't think could have fully had any idea, but he's sitting there and he's writing this. He's going, it's about to take effect. This new command that is going to be the hinge point for everything, it's beginning to take hold and it's beginning to eradicate and dispel the darkness. And this single command and this single ethic and this brand of compassion unknown to the Roman world, I'm telling you, it is starting to move. It's starting to make a difference. It's starting to change the world and eventually it's going to change everything. John's writing this going, it's working. And then he says... Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims to have a relationship with Jesus, anyone who claims to be enlightened, anyone who claims to know God, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, they're in darkness. Now, here's where this gets difficult because this, here's where the loophole escape clause work around side of all of us comes out. Because if I were to ask the question, hey, is there someone that you hate? Just raise your hand real quick. Nobody's going to, re- one guy in the back, but nobody, nobody's going to do that. Hey, is there a group of people that you hate? Generally, nobody is going to raise their hand. It's just kind of, because... Hate's not a virtue. In some cultures, hate literally is a virtue, not in our culture. Nobody wants to recognize it. Nobody wants to admit to it. So we're not going to say, well, I hate somebody. Instead, we'll, we'll kind of, well, I just don't like them. I just, I just don't like to be around them. I, they're so ignorant, I just don't like to talk to them. I don't hate them. I wish they'd all disappear, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't hate them. Yeah, if there's a button and they would just, everybody would disappear, I would push that button. But hate is a strong, strong word. I just, I just dislike them. I just don't want to talk to them. I just think they're ignorant. And I, I just don't want to have any a- interaction. But hate, I, I don't know about, I don't know about hate. So let me change the words. Here, here's what John's saying. If anyone claims to be in the light, but he dismisses his brother or sister, he rejects his brother or sister, He considers them unimportant. He marginalizes them. Extreme case, he mistreats them. If anyone claims to be in the light but dismisses, rejects, considers unimportant, marginalizes, 
or mistreats is walking around in darkness. And then here is the translation. It does not matter how much you pray, how much you attend, how much you sing, how much you give, how much you have quiet time, how many community groups you're in, how much theology you know, whether you know the difference between transubstantiation and consubstantiation and dispensations. It doesn't matter about any of that because if you allow yourself to marginalize, mistreat, and ignore someone around you, you are walking in the dark. And, and, and I know that, that well, I, at seven years old, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Like, no, 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 I, I, I believe you. You'll, you'll go to heaven when you die. But until then, you're still walking around in the dark. Yeah, but I have an advocate with the Father. John's like, I know you got that from me. I wrote that. I, I understand you have an advocate with, with the Father, but you are in the dark. If you find a way to move to a place where you give yourself permission to, let's just take mistreat off the table, to ignore, to marginalize, to mistreat in any way, then you are, regardless of what you know and what stages you stand on and what position that you have accumulated, you are walking around in the darkness. And so he says, verse 10, is if he needed to keep going, if anyone loves their brother and sister, lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Basically, if you get the love thing right, you're good to go. If you, if you can embrace this, this single ethic, this single command, this single, this is what drives all of it, that at that point, it tends to take care of everything else. It answers every other question. It's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful. He's like, if you want to be like God, here's what being like God looks like. It's moving to the person who doesn't deserve you to extend grace and extending grace. It's talking to the person who's not like you. It's loving the person who is unlovable in the moment. It's moving in the direction of the person who does not hold any of your political views. It is moving toward the marginalized who can do nothing in return. It's interacting with people who are the antithesis of what you are, what you believe, what your background is like. It is moving toward individuals who can't and won't do ever anything in return. It's moving toward the individuals that you are uncomfortable with and that you are uneasy with. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to be like God, if you want to be godly, that's what godliness looks like. If you want to be, he uses the word perfect, meaning mature in Christ, that's what it looks like. And I just want to tell you, our definition in the church and among Christianity about what godly means in many cases never matches up to what you see in the scripture. It doesn't matter what nation you're from, whether you know how to read, which means you can't really do a quiet time, what your socioeconomic status is. It really boils down to, I have trusted and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm not really down the road very far intellectually, but I am loving my neighbor. And Jesus says to you, you are godly. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. And they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. See, real quick, and I got to move, but when we marginalize, mistreat, or ignore we don't just create conflict with other people. We, you should just know this. You create conflict with God. And not that he's going to love you any less or his grace is not going to be available. All of that's secure in Christ. But, but you can't marginalize and mistreat people made in his image and think that that's not going to bring conflict in regard to your relationship with him. Because it's all about the you beside you. 
vertical religion has been replaced by horizontal religion. And, and John says, listen, if, if you're in that place, you are walking around in darkness. And all of us intuitively know that. Have, have you ever been in a place where you're struggling with bit, bitterness? Isn't, isn't that what bitterness does? Isn't that what anger does? Don't you stumble around from relationship to relationship in darkness? And John's going, it doesn't matter whether you're going to go to heaven when you die. This is, this is about your experience now. This is about your connection with your heavenly father, with your savior, that you can't mistreat the people to your right and your left, the Republican to your right, Democrat to your left, the libertarian in front of you, the person that you can show shot, throw shots at behind social media because you think it doesn't matter there. The people group in your neighborhood that, you don't discriminate, but you just don't ever want anything to do with them. The person who doesn't believe what you believe, John's like, you're in darkness, bro. And then here's why he could say all of that. This is our message, what he's already written, 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, hinge point, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Because the person that I dismiss, the person that I marginalize, the person that I want to ignore just because I don't connect and it's too uncomfortable, the same Savior that died for me is the Savior that died for them. In essence, everybody is somebody for whom Christ died. And their advocate with the Father, this is uncomfortable, is your advocate with the Father. See, I've said this a hundred times, but it just bears repeating. If you have a favorite nephew, if you have a kid, and somebody mistreats your kid and then invites you to coffee and then never mentions it and acts like that you guys are cool, you're not cool. If you mistreat my kids, you have a problem with me. See, because isn't this true? It, if I mistreat someone that you love, it is like I'm mistreating who? You. And so here, here's the summary statement, and, and here's, and we'll begin to unpack this a little further in the next couple of weeks, but here, here's the message of Christmas is that God through Jesus came to communicate and demonstrate. That God came to communicate and demonstrate. It's going to pop up here in a second. God came to communicate and demonstrate. I'm just going to keep saying it until it appears. God came to communicate and demonstrate. Here's what I mean. That God came through Jesus to go, okay, I want to narrow the whole thing down. And it may be simple, but I'm telling you, it's demanding. It is love for God is exhibited in love for other people. And I'll tell you why that's uncomfortable. Because there are no loopholes in that. There are no escape clauses. There are no workarounds. It is terrifyingly clear. And he came to communicate that the game has changed. And if you want to know where you are here, just look over here. And then he came to demonstrate it. To go, okay, if you want to know what I mean by what I said, watch what I did. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus Jesus said, watch what Jesus did. And he came to planet earth to call sin, sin, and then pay for it. 
and to say, that's how far love goes. I was willing to give up my life for the sake of humanity, and I want you to be willing to do the same thing. And if you wonder where you're at with me, just look at me, because the whole message of Christmas is that Jesus is going, I'm removing the ambiguity. You don't ever have to wonder anymore. There's not nearly as many gray places as you think. I came to communicate and demonstrate that it's all about Jesus, and if you want to know what it looks like to have a relationship with God, just follow me. See, at Christmas, all of the, all of the complication and mystery around religion is removed forever. And vertical religion replaced horizontal religion, and it brought clarity to everything. So you want to know what sin is in the Jesus movement? All the questions about, is this okay? Is that okay? Is, how far is far enough? If I do this, is God cool with that? And all the blogs and theological papers we write and commentaries to try to work ourselves around stuff. Let me just give you the definition of sin with this new movement. If it's not best for them, it's a sin. You don't even need a verse. Was it, where is that? You don't need a verse. But I'm not sure. You don't need a verse. If it's not best for for them, ultimately, it's a sin. And if you're stumbling around going, is that okay? Is that a sin? How far can I go? Is this all right? Jesus is going. It is a new day, and this approach to God has got to change forever. And it is simple, but it is difficult. In fact, I put it in my notes this way. Love and the Jesus movement characterized by love is less complicated than law, but I'm telling you it is far more demanding. Because when you start asking, hey, what's best for her? You won't find an escape clause. No commentary is going to help you. What's best for him? What should I do in this case? There are no loopholes in any of that. And it brings us to this terrifying question that I want to end with that I've talked about before is this question of what does love demand of me? And John's like, if you're ever unsure, just look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who has put all of this on display. You don't need a commentary. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a theology class. This makes everything so incredibly clear. And here's what you need to know. All of the New Testament commands, imperatives, were simply examples of the application of what does it mean to love your neighbor. It's not even an exhaustive list because we don't even need it. There's a lot of cases where you could just throw out some of the commands because if you begin to ask the question, because of my love for God, what does love demand of me with the people around me? Verses don't even matter. Love will take you to the extreme that the law will never take you. So what does love demand of you? And that's so simple. But that is extraordinarily demanding. That abolishes religion and takes away all of this escape clause, is this okay, is this not okay game that we tend to play. But I'm telling you, it's hard, it's hard to move out of because your consciences are hardwired to vertical religion. Religion always trends vertical. And God says, I want to change the game. And where you're at with God is now, it's now determined by what's happening horizontally. As I close, I was thinking about this as I was studying. If there's one thing that I could go back and undo about my earlier years, this would be it. If there's one thing I could undo. Because I was... I'm kind of type A, I was good at being good. 
I could follow the rules. I mean, I went off the rails a few times, but overall, I was really good at being good, pretty disciplined. And what happens sometimes, it's not all the time, but sometimes when you're good at being good, you become very good at being judgmental. And there, there was a period where, you know, I just look at other people around me and, and unknowingly I was, I was shackled to this old covenant, old contract way of thinking that I didn't realize had been abolished forever. And so I would have these things in the back of my mind of, I mean, they're not really, they're not really doing it and God's not really going to bless them and God's favors and they're not doing what I'm doing. And I was so good at being good that I became good at being judgmental. And what I didn't realize is, not until later, is that I almost exclusively focused on believing right rather than loving well. And come on, believing right is important, but I just, I cannot preach this enough in our time together for however long God has us as a church in the years to come, is that believing right is an end, is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. Believing right is simply the catalyst to love well. Love God and love other people around you. And I focus so much on believing right that, that I lost sight of loving well in a lot of cases. And here's what's interesting about where I'm at even now in my life is there's a lot of things that I know for sure that I believe that I would give my life for. But there's, there's times where even now I don't know what to believe. But I always know what love demands of me. And so what does it demand of you? And can I just press you really, really hard regardless of where you're at? Because I know some of you have been around this game so much and you know so much and you're looked to by so many people that this can simply go right by you. Your relationship with God is not measured by how much you know and how much you've read and how much theology that you've dispensed and how long you've been involved and whatever else is on your resume. I, you just need to know, and this is a little uncomfortable, is that all of that could be worthless if it has not been a means to an end of loving people around you well. And today, you just need to clarify for yourself that where you're at with God is solely determined by where you are at with the people around you. And so what does love demand? For, for some of you, love may demand during this season, because it's so relevant for us, is to extend grace to somebody who does not deserve you to extend grace to them. Because unfortunately, that's what love demands. For some of you, it's to cancel the debt and forgive somebody who doesn't deserve your forgiveness, but it's what love demands of you. For others of you, it's to have a really hard conversation with an adult kid to apologize, even though you believe that they're 90% responsible and you're 10%. But it's what love demands. For some of you, you need to push back from this ridiculous Christian culture thinking that has you blinded to view everything through your political lens. And soon, as soon as it comes to somebody who disagrees with you or holds a different political view from you, that you quickly forget that their advocate is your advocate and their savior is your savior. And even hiding behind social media does not give you the right to mistreat somebody who is made in the image of God regardless of who they are. For some of you, it maybe is to approach somebody 
that you're uncomfortable with, that you tend to avoid, that you attend to just kind of stiff arm and stay away from, and instead moving in their direction to try to create some kind of relationship because that's ultimately what love demands of you. And John in his writing is going, okay, this, this is it. If you, ever, if you ever miss it, Jesus came to communicate and demonstrate that it's all about this, and it is incredibly demanding, but it is simple. What does love demand of you? It's why Jesus came, for God so loved the world that he gave. And so, what is love demand? That one virtue and that one command and that one ethic in the first century was a one-word revolution. It toppled the Roman army without even raising a sword. It began to change the culture and infiltrate the world. And the only reason that you know love and sacrifice as an ethic is because Jesus presented it in the first century. It changed people, it changed families, it changed everything. And I'm telling you, it has the power to change your family. It has the power to change your relationship. It has the power to change that dead end. I don't know where this is going. I don't know if it could ever be worked out. It has the potential to change your neighborhood. It has the potential to change our city. So what does love so uncomfortable demand of you? That's terrifyingly clear. Would you guys pray with me all over the house? Jesus, I thank you that we can approach you and that we can talk to you. And that you have invited us in to a level of relationship that is astonishing. That in this moment, knowing me, I know me better than anybody knows me. I know my unworthiness. I know my inconsistencies. I know my dysfunction. I know my heart. And that because of Jesus, I would be invited in in this moment to literally have the ear of the creator God of the universe. And Lord, I don't want that for me and even for many of us in this room to ever, ever get old. Lord, I thank you for what you have done to pave the way for us to be able to have relationship with you when none of us deserve it. And Lord, I thank you for coming and removing the mystery and the complication over what does it mean to have a relationship with God forever. And Lord, for some of us, to just be honest, it is uncomfortable because it is much, much easier to hide behind Old Testament, Old Covenant, Old Contract thinking where we can create a list, we can decide on some things that we feel like appeases our conscience before God and lift our hands and worship and play the game and go to study after study and accumulate more theology and all the while we are ignoring and doing the one thing that is at the heart of it all, which is to, out of our love for you, love the people who are around us. And so I pray that you would just bring, as uncomfortable as it is, bring to the surface in all of us, starting with me, those areas in our life where we have just settled for this vertical morality, vertical religion that ignores what is at the heart of this movement. 
and that we would begin to love you out of your love for us by loving the people that you love around us. And God, for some of us, that is so much more uncomfortable than what we want to admit right now. We are in a culture that, Lord, has tainted even the Jesus movement where if we move to a place where we disagree with someone, we can mistreat them in every way imaginable and still think we're okay with you. And so God, I just pray that you would bring those things to the surface, no matter how much they are accepted and condoned in our culture, even our Christian culture. That whether it's politics, whether it's race, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's background, whether it's social skill, that God, you would begin to just move to the surface all of those things that are so uncomfortable that we don't wanna confront them. And that we would ask the question, wanting an answer, what does love demand of us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.